Well, let me be the, uh, I think by my count, the fourth person this morning to wish you good morning. Um, We're glad that you're here, you sinful, stubborn, stained sinners, you companions of thieves and orphan haters. You are stained and you can't get it out. There is blood on your hands, you harlots and murderers. That's not a very nice way to begin a sermon. And I wouldn't dare (laughs) because I can't read your hearts. But that's exactly how the prophet Isaiah began his book in Isaiah chapter 1. You want to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah. We'll actually begin in Isaiah chapter 6. People have said that Isaiah is kind of like a a mini Bible, that you have 39 chapters of wrath and judgment and God identifying sin and calling His people to repent. And, And then you have 27 chapters of hope and deliverance that could be theirs if they did repent. And some have suggested that's like, The Old Testament and the books there, and the New Testament's the book there. Same number of books as chapters. And maybe that's a simplistic way of understanding the the Bible and also the book of Isaiah, but it might be helpful to you. My question this morning is, is what gave Isaiah the courage and the boldness to speak the way he did to these people? Uh, Knowing that he was going to get a response oftentimes that was very, very negative in return, He called a spade a spade. He called sin, sin, and gave them the message of the Lord. Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told the reason why. And Isaiah chapter 6 is really a flashback to the beginning of Isaiah's ministry when he was called by the Lord to bring God's message to God's people. Would you read with me, please, in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah, one of God's kings, died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. That's a sign of respect from these angelic creatures. And with two He flew. They had just the right number of wings. And one cried out to another and said, you imagine a great hall with God's throne up there and these angelic creatures flying around and calling back and forth to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me. You imagine this beast, this angelic creature flying toward you having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar that is before the Lord. 
and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now up to this point, those angelic creatures have spoken. Isaiah has spoken. But now the Lord, God, is going to speak. Verse 8. Also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I! Send me. What a scene. Isaiah is ushered into the presence of the thrice holy Yahweh. And he is called to be a prophet. And he is more than awestruck by this scene that he sees. He is totally devastated by it. He says, I am undone. And this was a good and righteous man who in chapter 5, if you were to read chapters 1 through 6, he had pronounced woes upon the people of God because of their sin and their unrighteousness. And yet he himself calls out in fear and awe in verse 5 of chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes, my sinful eyes, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And may I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, If the Lord were to appear in this auditorium as He appeared to Isaiah, all of us would fall on our faces before Him. Because we would be awed by a holy and all-powerful God. But I think it's important for us to remember that in physical terms, Isaiah wasn't a bad person. In fact, just the opposite. He was a good person trying to do what was right. But maybe what's implied by this whole scene is that Isaiah was not as active or as involved as he should have been. But when God appears to him and asks the question out into the ether, who will we send and who will go for us? Isaiah jumps up from lying prostrate before God and he says, here am I, send me. And if you this morning, if you're already a pretty good person and you don't do much wrong and there's no glaring sin in your life, but maybe you, like Isaiah, aren't as involved as you ought to be in the positive, active works of Christianity, may I humbly suggest, I can't read your heart, but look into your own. If you're only just not doing the things you ought not, you're only half the Christian you ought to be. And this sermon this morning is for you. Do we say to God, here am I, send me? You know, God has always wanted servants who serve Him willingly. And that's why He gave us free will in the first place. So that we would volunteer to serve Him. We choose. We make the choice to serve Him or not. And I suppose God could have made us robots where He just controlled us and And we say to him, we love you because he programmed us to do that. But instead, God wanted free will beings. People who volunteered. People who chose him of their own free will. And we know even from a physical standpoint, anybody who's ever had to run a business or anything along those lines, forced labor is always the worst kind of labor. But passionate, willing, 
equipped volunteers. Those are the kinds of people that can make a real difference. And it takes people like Isaiah who say, I want to serve. I want to do something. I want to work for the Lord. Here am I. Send me. And so wherever we are on that spectrum of being very involved to not very involved at all with the works of God and the works of Christianity, or even the works of this local church, I want us to consider this passage and consider Isaiah's reaction to this question from God. And specifically, I want us to consider three reasons, three motivating factors that answer the question, what should cause us to volunteer just like Isaiah did? The first thing I think we could all point to pretty quickly and pretty easily. What should cause us to volunteer? Well, the one who is asking us to volunteer should cause us to. Now, this verse is probably familiar to most of us. Even if you couldn't say exactly where it was from, that phrase, here am I, send me, is something that's fairly well known. But something that, that I didn't personally see for a long time was that when Isaiah said those words, here am I, send me, he had no idea whatsoever what he was signing up for. Do you notice that in the text? God asks the question, whom shall we send and who will go for us? He doesn't say where this person is being sent or what this person is going to do when they get there, but that didn't matter to Isaiah. Isaiah said, whatever it is, here am I, send me. God asking was all the motivation Isaiah needed to volunteer. Uh, this, this past weekend, Friday and Saturday nights, uh, Stephanie and I, we drove up to Dallas. Not both times, we drove up there and spent the night. We drove up to Dallas and uh, I was asked to speak at a big banquet for a bunch of uh, kids who were Christians. And there were maybe 110 kids who were there both nights and um, and it was a really neat event. Six of our kids from here went up there as well. And I think most of them actually are still up in Dallas worshiping up there this morning. Um, and I had some activities that I wanted to do. You know me, I got to be extra. I can't just go up there and speak. I got to make them do some stuff too. And so I was asking for uh, volunteers. And, and it's funny, that first night when everybody gets there, everybody's kind of in their little groups and I needed about six groups, and so it was just naturally kind of made that way for me. And so I walked up to this first group, and I asked the question, I said, hey, can y'all do something for me? And there was a boy there that, that I kind of know pretty well. I would preached a lectureship at a congregation where he attends a couple of years ago. Uh, our families know one another, that sort of thing. And immediately when I asked the question, he said, sure. But there was another girl in that group there. There was a girl who I didn't know at all. And at the exact same moment that he said, sure, she said, what is it? Well, what's the difference between those two responses? Between, can you do something for me? Sure. And can you do some for, something for me? What is it? May I suggest that it's really, really two things. That young man who said sure without asking what it was or what it would entail for him, he knew me. He knew that I was the preacher and because of that there was a certain amount of respect that went along with that. And if the preacher's asking, well, I probably ought to do it. But second of all, he trusted me. 
We had had nothing but positive interactions with one another. He had heard me preach a few times. He, he knew that I had his best interests at heart, I think. And so he trusted if I was asking him to do something, then it must be something that would be okay, something that would be good for him to do, either for himself or other people. He respected me, and he trusted me. May I suggest that when it comes to God, those are the same two elements that must be present. So often our motivation, like Isaiah, for doing the task of Christianity is just the one who is asking us to do them. God is asking. And just like Isaiah doesn't hesitate because it's God that's asking, we shouldn't hesitate either. And those same two reasons are in view for Isaiah. Respect for God. But more than respect, it is godly fear and reverence and awe in the presence of the Creator of the universe. And so yes, if that God who is who He says He is, if He asks me to do something, here am I. Send me. And if we, as physical creatures living in a physical world, if we can get even a glimpse of the spiritual, if we can get a glimpse of God and who He is and all that He is as the Creator of this universe and as the ruler of the spiritual realm, if we can see beyond the veil for just a moment and see God on His throne, even with how little we can imagine it, then we too will volunteer for service. How can we do anything but? But it is not just God's greatness in who He is, the respect and reverence and all. But it is also God's goodness that should cause us to volunteer. That God can be trusted. That He has proven His character over and over in the Bible. And He has proven His character over and over in my life. The most glaring example of that, of course, is in giving His Son, Jesus Christ, to die so that I can be forgiven. If God was willing to do that for me, Surely He's not going to ask me anything that would be to my harm, that would be to my detriment spiritually. I trust Him. Uh, there's a song that we sing sometimes that is a reminder of this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. The first verse of that song goes like this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise just to know, thus saith the Lord. We talked about this a little bit in Bible class, in fact. We talked about that concept that, that no matter how good somebody is, people eventually will, will let us down. And that's because people aren't perfect. And, and if you're looking for people, perfect people in this pulpit or in these pews, you've come to the wrong place. None of us, none of us are perfect. We're trying. We're doing our best. But if our faith is in people... People will let us down. And it bothers me. It bothers me when I hear of people losing their faith because of, of, of maybe some celebrity Christian, quote-unquote, like, like Ravi Zacharias. And you, you find out about great sin in his life and people say, my faith is shaken. Or on a more personal level, maybe it's somebody in our own lives and we looked up to them as this model of what a Christian should be. And, and then we find out that they too have feet of clay and they have sin in their life. And maybe it... It causes us to question our own faith. If that's the case, maybe our faith wasn't in the right place to begin with. 
I can trust in Jesus. I can trust in His promises and His Word. When He says something, I can know that it is irrevocably that way. And I know that I can go back to His Word and read what saith the Lord and find comfort in the truth of that. The chorus of that song goes like this. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. Why? How I've proved Him or and or. He's proven Himself over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust Him more. If God asks for volunteers, we should jump at the chance. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And because of what He has done for us. The second thing that should cause us to volunteer is gratitude for what God has done. Gratitude for grace, or the way I like to put it, but I think is really maybe in some ways more biblical, is grace for grace. We return grace to God for the grace that He has given us. We know that grace and gratitude are powerful motivators. And they're far more powerful motivators than than fear or even duty. Um, my father-in-law a few times has asked for my help. I know that's hard to believe because you know how many times I've asked for his help over the course of my life. But because occasionally he calls and says, Reagan, can you help me with something? Whenever he does that, I always answer, of course. If I possibly can, I'm going to help you with that. Because of respect, because he's my father-in-law, sure. Because of trust, because I know he's not going to ask me to do anything that's wrong, yes. Because of obligation and duty, sure, there's some of that in there as well. All of those are motivators. But you know, maybe the greatest motivator to help my father-in-law is because he has given so much to me. Um, You know, the biggest, most important thing he's given to me is his daughter in marriage. But he's a man who's just helped me so much and in so many ways over the course of my life. I'm grateful for what He's given me, and so I want to jump at the chance. You mean I can actually help you with something instead of you helping me with something? Cool! How much more so with God, who has given us everything? Shouldn't we jump at the chance to say, you know, God is asking me, me, with all of my sin, with all of my problems, with all of my shortcomings, with all of my limitations, He's asking me for my help. Outside of who God is, what was Isaiah's personal motivation? Um, I think we see that with this whole uh, the coal and putting it on his lips and cleansing his lips and, and those sorts of things. God had purged Isaiah from his sin. And Isaiah, in this moment before God, he saw his sin more clearly than he had ever seen it before, I think. He he knew that his sin separated him from God. And yet God had forgiven him and cleansed him of that sin. Because of God's grace, Isaiah went from this man of unclean lips who dwelt among a people of unclean lips to a man whose lips were so clean and pure that he could speak the very words that came from God. And that transformation that he went through, that purification, that spurred him to his work. And when Isaiah began his book with this whole, you know, you're dirty and stained and stubborn and you're children of Sodom and Gomorrah and you're orphan haters and all this stuff, 
Isaiah wasn't telling the people anything that, that he didn't realize about himself as well. That he was a sinner. That he had fallen short of the glory of God. And he wanted those people to recognize and see their sin so that they could find a remedy for that sin in God and what God was offering. It is based on what God has done for us that we did not deserve. That we want to return something back to God in thankfulness. You know, there are some people in the religious world who say that grace, that grace requires nothing of us. That it's just by grace and there's nothing that you should do, nothing that you can do. May I suggest, on the contrary, that it's just the opposite. That grace requires everything from us. In fact, biblically, the gift God gives and the thanks and service that we give back in gratitude are both called grace. And I think we know that if we stop and, and think about it. Um, we were at a restaurant um, yesterday afternoon before the banquet, um, and there was uh, this little boy uh, in the booth across from us. There's a big divider. And you've been at restaurants like this where the kid just kind of does this number. You know, like, I'm like, hey, what's up? And he's immediately like... Then in a little bit, he's up again. And it kind of just made me notice that, you know, there's this family sitting on this other side over here. And so I could hear them talking just a little bit. Um, and the dad, uh, when the food came, he did something pretty cool. He looked at this little boy and he said, would you like to say grace? Now, who in here has heard a prayer called that? Say grace. Yeah, most of us have heard that phrase, especially in the South, Right? It's called that. Will you say grace? Well, what does it mean to say grace? Well, we're giving thanks to God, right? Thanks to God for what He has done for us. Thanks for the blessings and provisions that He has provided. And what we're doing there is we're returning grace, saying grace, in response to God's grace or blessings in our life. And that's exactly the way the New Testament uses that word and that concept. The Greek word is charis. And, and many times when you see in our New Testaments in English, when you see the word thanks or thanksgiving, a lot of times it's that same word that's translated in other places as grace. And of course, it's not just our prayers that are grace to God. It is our service to God that is a return of grace. Gratitude for what He's given me. Um, turn to the book of Ephesians, if you would. Maybe keep your spot in Isaiah 6. Turn in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Let's look at just a few verses there in Ephesians chapters 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul is the one who's writing to a church in Ephesus, uh, Asia Minor, what is called then, it's modern day Turkey. And he says this in verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Uh, Paul, this great apostle, he knew his sin, he knew his shortcomings, right? This grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I was given this grace, this blessing, this favor from God, that I should preach the gospel. He says, my very role is by grace. Now, if you drop down to chapter 4 and verse 7, it's not just Paul to whom that applies. It's also us. 
Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Any Christian. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, now we don't usually think about grace in these terms, but everything we have, everything that we are as Christians is by God's grace. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 6 says something very similar. Having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them in all the different ways. And so my abilities and your abilities, my talents and your talents, the opportunities that we have to serve God and serve others are all by grace. It is God-given on loan from Him. So how am I using the, the blessings that He's given me, the, the cleansing of my sins, the opportunities that He provides? Am I a good steward of God's blessings? Well, if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Those are different roles in the church. For what purpose? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. For, these are the roles provided to the saints so that they might do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And what's the ultimate goal? We'll look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, the whole church, the whole family of God, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Will you hear me clearly on this? I'm not going to be as bold as Isaiah, but let me be bold for just a moment. God did not create the entire universe, have a plan from before the foundation of the world, send His Son, Jesus Christ, to live and die on a cross and then raise Him again on the third day. And through Christ, establish the church, the fullness of Him who fills all in all, so that we could just occasionally come and sit in a pew somewhere. God desires workers in His kingdom, fulfilling their roles as citizens of that kingdom. And more specifically, God desires workers in His local churches, fulfilling their roles in these local bodies. Because of what God has done for me, cleansing me of my sin, giving me purpose and hope in my life, directing me on the right way to live. What a blessing! I know how to live. Protecting me from the evil one. Answering my prayers according to His will. And much, much more. All of these blessings by grace. I am motivated, like Isaiah, to volunteer for service. To give my life in service to Him, however long that life might be. And that's the third and final thing that should cause us to volunteer. That there is urgency and an end date to what it is God has, is asking us to do. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would with me please. When Isaiah volunteered, we, we quit reading at the end of verse 8, when Isaiah volunteered, God didn't say, great, I'm glad you volunteered, I'll get back to you. I'll let you know what you need to do in a few weeks or months or years. That's not the way it worked. There was something for him to do right then. And so in verse 9, here's what God says in response to Isaiah. Then God said, the Lord said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive, 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. You know what God says to Isaiah? He says, I want you to be just the most annoying, persistent prophet ever. I want you to go and I want you to tell these people where they have no excuse what their sin is. And though I want them to repent, here's the reality, Isaiah. How's this for encouragement for somebody going out to preach? You're going to go and preach and you're going to be super annoying and nobody's going to listen to you. But I want you to do it, Isaiah, because I love these people. And I don't want them to have any excuse why they didn't return to me. Now Isaiah asks a question that I think is probably pretty appropriate. He's volunteered for service, here am I, send me. And God says, well, this is what I'm sending you to do, and I need you to do it right now. There's urgency in this. So Isaiah asks a question, verse 11, probably the same question we would ask. Then I said, Lord, how long? <laughs> how long am I going to have to go and preach that very difficult message? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste, and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. He says, I need you to preach to those people as long as you can until my judgment comes. God's judgment was coming. And God's judgment is coming for us as well. What do we do until then? Until I die and my destiny is sealed or the Lord comes again, whenever that might be, what do I do? I work. I work until then. With urgency starting now, but knowing that this won't go on forever, there's an end date to these things. And that's exactly what Jesus emphasized as well. Turn to one more passage with me if you would. John chapter 4. This is not just an Old Testament concept, of course. You know that. But let me give you one example from the New Testament. In John chapter 4, um, this is that famous account where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, asks her for a drink, remember? Um, and uh, she's like, why are you asking me? I'm a Samaritan woman and you're a Jew and all these things. And they have this back and forth. And Jesus says, well, if you'd asked me, I could have given you living water. And what he finds there in this city of Samaria is really fertile ground for the gospel. People who were ready to hear the gospel message. And his apostles had been in the town while this happened, and they come back with some food. And Jesus says to them in verse 34, John 4, 34, read with me please. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do, not, do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who, who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. What Jesus is saying is, from a physical perspective, the work hasn't really started yet. But from a spiritual perspective, look, the work is there. The work is now. The harvest is now and it is plentiful, but the laborers are few in this world. Now, this congregation, we're blessed with many laborers 
And so I encourage you to be diligent in your role, not out of compulsion, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you love God whom you have not seen, and you love your brother whom you have seen. But that urgency to start now has an end date for us as well. Later, just a few chapters later, in John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus said in the English Standard Version, it says this, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now that night was Jesus' death specifically, but more generally it's all of our day of death. When I die, my work is done. However much or however little I have done. And so I need to work, and work with urgency, knowing that I won't live forever. And I want to accomplish as much as I can in God's service. Okay, we've got about five minutes left. That's the lesson. But I want to have a really uh, pointed application here at the end of this lesson. And this is specifically for our members here. Um, I've got some gentlemen with some sheets. This is your cue to get up, get up um, pass those out. If you need a pen to write with, they should have some pens also, um, these young men. As they are passing these out, I'm going to give you some instructions to go with it. I hope we've established this morning all Christianity is voluntary by nature. That's the way God set it up. It's not compulsion, it's because you choose to, because you want to. And it's not because I'm asking you or somebody like me is asking you. Um, It's because you feel compelled that God is asking you to serve Him. God doesn't make us do anything. We make the choice of what we're going to do or what we're not going to do. And God simply tells us what His will is, what needs to be done, and we make the choice on whether to do it or not. But maybe sometimes, and this is a question that I've gotten a lot over the course of my preaching life, maybe sometimes we ask the question, well, what can I do? What is there for me to do? I want to volunteer, but I'm not sure exactly what that might look like, what what needs there are. Um, So let me try and help with that a little bit for our members this morning. Um, All those who wish to, this is voluntary, everything's voluntary, you're here voluntarily this morning. Um, When you first became a member at Timberland Drive, uh, you probably filled out a sheet like this, Um, whether that was a few weeks ago or a year ago or 50 years ago. Maybe we have a few of those in here. Um, You probably filled out a sheet kind of like this. And so the deacons here have requested of me to uh, give everyone the opportunity to fill this sheet out again. Because maybe the things that you're willing to do have changed since the last time you filled this sheet out. And so this just has some things that that you might be willing to do as a member of this congregation. Okay, everybody have that? Everybody have a pen to go with it? If you're not a member, you can still get one of these sheets, look it over. That's great. Oh, that's good. That's a good problem to have. Jesse made the copies, not me. So Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two minutes, uh, members, to fill this out. And while you're doing that, I'm going to talk to our visitors for just a second. So, visitors, the members can't hear us anymore. Okay, I, I want to just take just a moment to thank you for being here. Thank you for visiting with us. We have a few, I think, who are visiting with us for the very first time, um, this morning, um, 
I want to tell you what it is we're trying to do here. Um, we just want to be Christians. Not any specific kind of Christian, not this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian, just Christians. And so in order to try and do that, what we're trying to do is as much as possible, as closely as possible, try and be like a church that we find in the New Testament. Um, like a local church, like we, we read about the church in Ephesus and Philippi and those sorts of things. We try and organize ourselves that way. We try and uh, arrange our services in the same way. And some of the things that we do a little differently than other places are because of that very reason. We partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday because that's what they did in the first century. We, we worship God in song and we don't use instruments because they didn't use instruments in the first century. Um, I'm not the pastor here. I don't get offended if people call me that, but I'm not. I'm just a preacher. Um, we have shepherds, elders, who look after the spiritual well-being. And we have deacons, like the guys who asked me to fill out, uh, hand out these pages, servants um, who take care of a number of other needs. That's the way we try and arrange ourselves. Um, and so that's simple. That's what we're trying to be. Uh, we're trying to just be what God has called us to be. And my hope and my prayer is that if we can be what God has called us to be in these simple ways, and obviously culture is different, technology is different, but as much as we can, if we can just be a New Testament church, our hope and prayer is that God might be pleased with us. That's two minutes. This sheet, um, members, that you're filling out is just a start. Um, there are two little clipboards you're allowed to. The preacher's given you permission to look back at the back wall. There are two little clipboards on your way out that have a sign-up sheet for locking the building and a sign-up sheet for helping with the high school curriculum. Uh, Eric, one of our deacons, uh, put out a call for help with that uh, earlier um, this month, or last month, I should say. And then on the table in a couple of stands at the very back of the foyer, there's some other things that you can sign up for. Some of those are for the collective work of the church here. Some of those are just works that various individuals are doing. Um, obviously, we have an email list where other things are set out, sent out as well. What can you do? That's the question that I'm asking you to think about this morning. And there are lots of things that Christians need to be doing, but there are needs that we have. Now, beyond the, the sheet and the sign-up sheets, aren't there many things that all of us should be doing as servants of God in evangelism and service and charity and love for our fellow man? Simple things that we should be doing to be salt and light as God has called us to be. Where we are personally involved in practicing hospitality with our neighbors and good works toward the poor and outcast and needy through our money and through our deeds. And trying to bring people closer to Christ because we are in their life. And hopefully that will make their life much, much better. So God is asking, Whom can I send? And who will go for us? I can't answer for you, but I can answer for me this morning. My Lord, here am I. Send me. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, you have that opportunity. God is calling you for that first and foremost, to come into His grace and mercy to know Him as He has revealed Himself. You've heard the word, won't you believe on what God has said, believe that Jesus is the Christ and be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. 
And if you're already a Christian and you realize that you've not been living the life that you ought to live, either you've been doing things you ought not, or maybe you haven't been doing things that you should, God has given us one another to encourage one another in that. And if we can help you, even this morning, come to the front now while together we stand and while we sing. Oh.